Amen. Gosh, I hope you love singing that song. That really... It's not the best one to sing right before I have to preach. Yeah, especially when I come up here and the first thing I write is silly. So then I have to go from like crying to talking and from talking to being silly. Okay, well, I hope you're glad to be here. My name is Ben, one of the pastors. We're going to be in James. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to James. It's a letter in the New Testament written by a guy who knew Jesus pretty well. And, you know, all the stuff about who he was that's helpful, but really it's God's word to us. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, let us gift you on the way out. Because James is something I want you to read and then keep reading. All scriptures that way. And James will provide a return on every repeated reading. I think you're going to keep up a lot better with what I say if you've read it before and read it again after. Uh, And man, it's just going to bless you. So read James. And yesterday, uh, I had to try and hang a bunch of frames downstairs. I don't know if you ever had to do that. It's more complicated than it sounds. If the frames are not all the same size, then you have to figure out how to organize them in such a way that it doesn't look crazy and that you can kind of get them to where they're square and even, where the eye seeing all the frames doesn't immediately realize that they're all crooked. I did my job. I tried as hard as I could. I hung all six. Rachel came in. She saw them, and she went, oh. Because <laughs> you can do your best, and all the math works out, uh, as well as I do math. And yet... You can look at the finished product and go, no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, and then I started explaining my process. There was all kinds of stuff involved. I'm not very good at all this. But there was a whiteboard. I was measuring things. I was listing out stuff in markers. I had a golf club at one point I was using to make things very level. Not great. Uh, I was using my measuring tape like a plumb line. I thought that was brilliant. Again, yielded terrible results. And what made it all worse... Uh, is what was in the frames. I was hanging all of our diplomas. We have several. Doesn't make you better at hanging picture frames. (laughs) You would think it would mean something about my knowledge, but no. You would think it means something about wisdom. And the reason I bring it up is because there is a lot to that word wisdom. I want to expand it so that it has value for you, but then I want to expand it again all the way to heaven. That word wisdom doesn't just mean wise living. It really does mean that you understand the world. You understand you. You understand what's around you. In Scripture, in Proverbs. So Proverbs is an Old Testament book that was written uh, mostly by this guy Solomon, reportedly the wisest guy in the world. And then in the New Testament, we have James, which is very similar to Proverbs in a lot of ways. It's strained through the Sermon on the Mount. You can imagine Proverbs plus the Sermon on the Mount, and then you get something like James. But in both of these books, we have this exaltation of the idea of wisdom and this explanation of what we mean by wisdom. And and hang with me, because it says in Proverbs 3, 19, that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth... What's under you? Founded the earth, and by understanding, he established the heavens. 
That means that creation took place and God used wisdom to do it, meaning you can now tap into wisdom, you can understand it, and by doing so, you're understanding how things work everywhere because it was the blueprint by which God made everything. And so, of course, finding wisdom is like finding gold. It's better. If you go before that part of Proverbs 3, he says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain of her is better than gain from silver. And her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you can desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. All her ways are ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. See in there something that's deeper, but, but not less than understanding the world. Hey, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. A wise person does. But a wise person knows more because what wisdom is described as here is not just a way of understanding the world in order to get from it what you want. Wisdom is a way of seeing all the way down and all the way up. You're able to see all the way down into your own heart. By wisdom, you're able to see all the way up to heaven itself. Again, people are always seeking wisdom, but they're seeking it for something. You're looking for best practices in order to have a business that works well or a family that functions well. But wisdom is not just the exploitation of how the world works in order to get what you want from it. It goes much further and it goes much deeper. And in James 1, I want you to read this with me. In James 1, he talks about this wisdom. Again, from last week, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, you may have read this text before. I have. And honestly, I've always understood it a little differently. I know it's very famous in, in Utah, This story, and and what it sounds like when you read it, is that God is like this sphinx. And you go up to this grand, mysterious presence, and if you have a pure heart, then when you ask Him what you want, He'll give it. But it's a test of your heart. Oh, you you got to know what you want, and you can't doubt. If you doubt, well, boop, then you lose. But if you know exactly what you want, if you are whole-minded, then... He will give you what you desire. And he becomes this impersonal force. It becomes like, and this is just how my brain works, in Monty Python they have the search for the Holy Grail and at one point they have to go across the bridge of death and there's the guy standing in front of the bridge of death and you can't get across unless you answer him his riddles three, his questions three, 
And if you miss, if you don't get the questions right, then you go into the gorge of eternal torment. And brave Sir Lancelot answers the three questions, and so he goes across. But then cowardly Sir Robin tries and then fails, and so he goes into the gorge. Is that what we're having described here? No. No. That misses what the whole New Testament is teaching us. That misses what all of wisdom literature in the Old Testament is teaching us. In order to understand exactly what's going on, I want us to see a little further into James 1. And I'm going to summarize some stuff, but I really want you to read it. Please go home and read it. But James 1, 1 through 18, we have this sort of condensing of the picture of two people. You have the steadfast man and the double-minded man. And here's a description of the one, the double-minded man. It says that he is a wave that gets tossed around by circumstances because he is unstable. He goes after his own pursuits, and trials tempt him. So not only does he experience a trial, but he responds to that trial with a whole range of temptations, including accusing God, the one person who can't tempt and is himself totally without evil and unable to lie. He desires what God forbids. And those desires lead him to actions that God forbids, which we call sins, which lead to death. Then you have the second guy, and the second guy is different. Instead of an unstable man, he is a steadfast man. He is perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He tells everyone of the grace of God in his life, and he boasts in his exaltation, even as he's fading like grass until he receives the crown of life. He pursues God with a fear that is the beginning of wisdom, and he asks God for wisdom in order to get more of God, meaning he's a worshiper. The God who gives wisdom generously without reproach also gives this man the object of his wisdom. He gives him God. He gives him himself. And with God, he also gets every good and perfect gift. He is a picture of what God can do with a man of first fruits. Now, duh, you don't want to be the first guy, the double-minded guy. Duh, you do want to be the steadfast guy, the guy who's perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the whole point of the sermon now is, how do we get from one to the other? How do we make sure that we are one and not the other? And to do that, hopefully, helpfully, we're going to look at a picture from the New Testament that I think brings all this out. We're going to look at two guys. One guy is John the Baptist, and the other guy is Herod Antipas. These are both historical figures they are attested to outside of the New Testament. And the story of the way that they interact with each other and the way that they interact with their community gives us a very clear picture of the double-minded man and the steadfast man. And you got to see it. The best way, I think, to see into these two men is to see where they met each other, which was at John's death. So John is a prophet. He prophesies clearly. He tells people how it is. And he tells this Herod guy that he's in sin. Herod is a guy named Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. If you're about to start reading Advent readings with your kids and going through and talking about Jesus coming... This is not the same Herod as Herod the Great, who was the one that the wise men talked to and because of what he heard, decided to kill all the young boys throughout Judah. It's not the same guy. 
Side note, if you're ever going to become famous with your son or infamous with your son, don't name yourselves the same thing. Very confusing. We've got Herod the Great, we've got Herod Antipas, and then Herod has a kid who's also Herod, and that's the Herod that kills the other people in the in Acts. Very confusing. To, uh, to kind of double or even treble the confusion, this Herod Antipas guy is in trouble with John, the prophet, because Herod Antipas decides to divorce his wife and marry another lady, which is crazy enough. Uh-oh, even further, that lady happened at the time to be married to Herod's brother. And the lady's name, you guessed it, is Herodias. Pretty much the same name. So he leaves his wife, he gets his wife to leave his brother, and then he marries that lady. And John calls it what it is. So Herod puts John the Baptist in jail. Then, as the story goes, it's Herod's birthday. And on Herod's birthday, Herodias' daughter comes out and dances for him. Now, I have little girls, and my little girls love to dance. They were doing all kinds of dances last night. They do silly dances, and they do sassy dances. They do all kinds of fun dances. This dance was different. This was a dance that pleased this Herod guy and all of his male guests. And you just watch, double-minded. This guy Herod is just getting blown around by his desires and his circumstances. He wants what he wants, and so he takes it. But he's being led by those wants. He's being led by those desires. I don't know if you know who Woody Allen is. He's written all these movies. Some of them were very well rewarded and reviewed, but he had all of this awfulness in his life, and then even more came out that was even more awful. But some of his awfulness sort of mirrors some of Herod's, and Alan said about himself in response to some of these revelations about his personal life, the heart wants what it wants. Okay, but do you see what comes of that? And then this Herod guy, he's doing the exact same thing. He just kind of wants, and those wants are just pulling him around. He's being blown around like wind. This girl does a dance, and it just attracts him. It just blows him around. And so he's, blah, he makes this oath before all his party guests that he'll give her whatever she wants, up to half of his kingdom. Right, he writes a blank check. You tell me what you want. So she goes and asks her mom, and her mom tells her, why don't you ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter? See, John had been arrested by Herod for telling him, you can't have your brother's wife, that's wrong. And now Herod is going to have this guy beheaded, so he does. He's double-minded, he's unstable. He doesn't want to do it because he's afraid of all the people who like John and think that he's a prophet, but he also doesn't want to renege on his big promise in front of all his people at his party. He doesn't want to look like a wuss. And so he does. Cuts off John's head and puts it on a platter and hands it to a girl, the daughter of his wife that he shouldn't have because of sexual feelings that he had for the girl that he shouldn't have had. Do you see the layers, the awfulness? This is the double-minded guy. Then contrast him to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one who clearly called out to God for wisdom and received it. 
We talk about the steadfast man. The steadfast man is not double-minded. When he goes to God and calls for wisdom, he receives it. And clearly, this John guy received it. The big question, of course, is how? What's the big difference between John and Herod? We'll get there. Look at the wisdom that he had. See, John, in his preaching, was clearly able to see through the Pharisees and see them for what they were, which nobody else could. In the New Testament, you have this class of religious leaders, and these Pharisees fooled everybody. They thought they were the most godly people around. And yet, when John came, when he saw the Pharisees, instead of bowing to them and thinking they were righteous, he called them, this isn't very tactful, a brood of vipers. That's not nice in any culture. But if the Jewish culture said that the devil came as a serpent, and you say that they are a brood of vipers, what are you saying? He not only saw through them, he saw through this situation with Herod. He had the wisdom to perceive what was really going on there and called a spade a spade. He called people to repent and in his preaching very perceptively teaches them how to go about that repentance based on who they are and what they have to do for a living. And of course, when he sees Jesus, he sees through him as well. And he doesn't just see a Jewish carpenter and he doesn't just see a religious leader, and he doesn't just see a political reactionary. He sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows Jesus. And what does all this wisdom add up to? When he's in prison, he sends some guys to go talk to Jesus, and Jesus says about John the Baptist at that time, this is pretty good, I tell you, this is Jesus saying of John, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Put that on your LinkedIn page. I don't know how LinkedIn works, but I assume that you put like things about you that's positive so people want to hire you. If you're able to say, uh, the greatest. Oh, really? Greatest? You're the greatest accountant for this company? No. I'm the greatest among those born of women. Really? That's like everybody. You think you're the greatest. Well, it's actually a quote. And who, pray, said this about you? You may have heard of him. Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty high praise. So how does John become John? How does Herod become Herod? Honestly, I feel more like a Herod. You know, this John guy is steadfast. And yet, when, when circumstances come at me, I find myself reacting with anxiety or fear. I find myself reacting the other way when good circumstances come, and I want to just honor them and feel like everything's great just because this one little thing has fallen into place. But I don't want to be like that. I want to be like John. I want to be like John even with the way that he died. You know, I'd love to keep my head, but I would much rather live a life of such consequence that the world around me has to either bend to what I am teaching and what I am living or snuff me out. Wouldn't you want to live a life of that kind of consequence? So, again, what's John's secret? Now, what James is saying is that it comes back to our desires. And you may not necessarily see that from the verses that we've read above about not being double-minded. But as you read through the whole of James, you see that that's clearly what he's teaching. In verse 14, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured 
and enticed by his own desire. And when you look into the hearts of these two men, then you say, what do they desire? Then the whole picture starts to come together. We know what Herod desired. What did John desire that made him steadfast? If you only know one thing about John the Baptist's teaching, probably do the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But if you ever know two things about John the Baptist's preaching, this John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. What is he saying? Uh, the disciples are, are watching as all these people are going out to Jesus. They're getting excited about Jesus and Jesus' ministry. And John, the, the Baptist disciples come up to him and say, look, all these people are going after him. They're getting so excited about him. What about you? You were the original. You're out here preaching and baptizing people. And now he's doing the same. And they're going to him instead of you. And he says, you don't get it. The whole of my ministry has been to bring honor to him. If they're going out after him, that means that I win. And he tells this parable about being the bridegroom and being the bridegroom's friend. And then he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, if we are saying that that's John's desire and that that golden desire made of John something steadfast and golden, something better, worth more than the Proverbs say, worth more than gold and more than silver, then what do we do with that phrase? He must increase and I must decrease. I think you get it, but I think that like me, you're probably a little frustrated with the second part. Yeah, of course, God, be glorified. But, you know, take me with you. Yes, God, be glorified, have good things. Everybody needs to see that you're the best and I want you to be even greater in my life. But, you know, make me a little greater too. You must increase, but can't I increase a little? Why do I have to not just say neutral, but even decrease? Why him up and me down? Well, because John knows what a heart is. You can't have both. Everything will either be a means or an end. You can't have both. Let's explain that through example. If you say, God be glorified so that my kids will learn to mind and they won't grow up and rebel, uh-oh. That seems like you increase and me increase a little bit too, but what you're really saying is you increase so that this other thing that I want actually happens. And as soon as you say that, you're actually worshiping that, not him. You say, Lord, you be glorified so that my assets won't get wiped out in whatever's coming in 2021. Yes, God, you be glorified and, you know, maybe give me a little protection along the way. Then what are you really saying? What you're really saying is, God, you be glorified so that I will be protected and I will have money. So God becomes the means and the money becomes the end. You say, God, you be glorified and make me a little more glorified along the way so I can look down on all these other sinners that I see and I just hate. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but churches have a reputation for being somewhat judgmental. Don't you think this might be where it comes from? 
Because we say, him be glorified and me too. Instead of him be glorified and me not. The humble person, the one who lays down their life, the one who's accepting that he's great and he's the only great, really great thing. Everything else is just coming down from the Father of lights, but he's really the great thing. As soon as you see that, then you're a worshiper of him rather than a user of him in order to worship something else. Forgive me if this offends you, but you can also say, God be glorified. So we can finally get this country back on track. Woo! Really? God now becomes the means to your political end, even if it's a great political end? If you can just get the order right, then you get everything else also. Of course we're going to fight to see the world change. Of course. But if one serves the other, you become a Pharisee, not a John the Baptist. We've got to get this right if you want your kids to do well, if you want to be secure, if you want a country that you can be proud of. You always have to say those things must somehow become less and him become more. John saw that it has to be both. He must become greater and greater. Everything else must become smaller and smaller in my heart beside him. Otherwise... We, may, we remain idolaters, and he remains distant. We remain double-minded, and he doesn't give us wisdom. Think for a second about what God would be doing to you if you came to him with that double mind. You come to him, and all you really want is him. You want to worship him. He's going to rain down wisdom on you because that wisdom is going to accelerate your pursuit of what you really need, him. If, though, you're double-minded, you're going to come to him asking for wisdom. And then what? He's going to give you wisdom, and you're going to use that wisdom not to get to him, but to accelerate your pursuit of what is not him. It's just fuel. This wisdom is going to either make you go faster to him or, and this is crazy, faster away. So, again, how do we become John? How do we have that heart? Well, another thing that I never really understood is that right after Jesus gives John this superlative, he then says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why would he say that? Why is that true? Well, John sends his disciples to Jesus that prompts this whole speech from Jesus about John in order to see if Jesus is really the one to come. It says, 18 and 19 of Luke 7, And John, calling to his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Uh-oh. John doubted. So even John's not a steadfast guy. And if the greatest can't be steadfast, what hope do we have that we're going to become John rather than Herod? Well, again, look what Jesus said. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why? Because the secret of the New Testament is not to be like John. The secret of the New Testament is that Jesus really did do it. 
Secret of the Testament is not go work harder and be wiser and somehow gain just a little bit more of a similarity to some people that are godly rather than a similarity to those that hate God and are worshiping other things. The point of the New Testament is that we've all failed except for Jesus. Jesus is actually the only one who really was steadfast. He was the only one who really stood before God and actually wanted God. How do we know that? If John's sermon is, he must become greater, I must become less, then Jesus's is an even greater version of the same sermon. Paul talks about how Jesus, being himself God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead made himself a servant. And he didn't just serve, he served even to the death. He must become greater, I must become less. And Jesus, how less did he go? He went as far down as you can go. Why? So that you and I can receive him and stand before God with Jesus' righteousness on us. How can you stand before God greater than John? Because you stand before God as Jesus. As little dunderhead us, but with Jesus' name on us. Do you see? That's Christianity. That's what he's come to give us. That's what John is so showing us with his life. And that's what James is preaching to us that wisdom really is. Have you received that wisdom? Has your heart been taken apart? And as you continue to go to this series on James with us, we're going to watch as James just does thing after thing after thing of showing you, do you see your desire? He's just going to crack open your heart. He's going to say, do you see what's going on in here? Bro, this is not he becomes greater and you become less. Let me show you how to do it the right way. And we're going to see wisdom after wisdom after wisdom. But it's not a wisdom that makes you smarter so that you can go and pursue other things. It is a wisdom that makes you holier so that you can see that God is the only thing you really need. And again, you might say to yourself, okay, well, then this is some kind of evangelistic sermon. He just wants Christians or uh, uh, non-Christians to receive Jesus and see that their righteousness will ever, never stack up. Well, James didn't see it that way. James is preaching to the tribes in the dispersion. He's preaching to you. He's preaching to me. He's preaching to people who say, if this is you, I don't know if it is or not, but he's preaching to people who say, I am a believer. And the words that he has for us in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded He's saying, you got Herod in you. Christian, you've got Herod in you. Weep over it. Be wretched. Mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Agree that you are a Herod. And what does God do? Read it. He will exalt If I'll agree with wisdom about me, I can receive from wisdom him. Don't you want that? So like I said, come back. Let's keep going through James together. When you go home today, read it. Read it to your kids. Try to memorize it. It will repay repeated reading. And see if God can show you your heart, your desires, that we worshiping Christ might even become 
steadfast. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please write these things on our hearts. Let us see, let us understand that, yes, we are Herod, tossed by our circumstances, but we can be made through Christ into yours. And yes, slowly and maybe even not very perceptibly, we're going to become more steadfast. But the point isn't to become steadfast. The point is to become yours and to be yours forever, Lord. Please let us see and understand. Have your believers throw off these sins that are entangling and choose to run with endurance the race you've set before us. We love you, sir. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.